morning, and it's just so fabulous to be back with all of our friends who are in room 2425. We have a lovely crowd on this beautiful spring day, and also so lovely to be with all of you um, who are following online. Let me frame our class this way. Um, very often, I just share with you what I hear other thinkers think. I want to offer my own thinking. I've got, I didn't read this from anybody else. This just comes from my heart. It's an assessment of Rabbi Harold Kushner. This is my own thinking. Uh, there's no other proof text for it. I believe that in the history of the 20th century, when a history will be written of the Jewish people, uh, let's say in the year 2100 or 2200, there will see, be seen to be three big moves, three big trends about 20th century American, or 20th century Jewish people in all their, their different responses to the Shoah. The first, of course, is the existence of the state of Israel. Obviously, our story, the Jewish people's story, is the story of Israel. The Holocaust ends in 45. Israel is created in 48. That's why Israel in 75 is such a big deal. That's the first story. Second story, I think, the second most seminal event, person thinking, is Menachem Mendel Schneerson and the rise of Chabad. Because Chabad itself was decimated in the Shoah. Uh, the Menachem Mendel Schneerson himself lost a ton of family in the Shoah. And his response to the Shoah is to have warm Chabad homes in every point of planet Earth. Uh, Bangkok and Thailand and everywhere you go, there's a Chabad. And that is his response. Um, and it's amazing. And the third, I think, the third most seminal, impactful, influential deal in the 20th century Jewish story is Harold Kushner. Because Harold Kushner, and I, we'll talk about Harold Kushner, I think Harold Kushner will be seen to be a giant, a towering figure in the development of, of, of Judaism. Um, and future generations, when they think about really thoughtful Jews who made a difference, they will mention Harold Kushner um, as the pivotal figure of his age. Uh, and the reason is, and we'll talk about this more in a minute after the blessings, he gave God to a people, to the human beings, hum the human race, and to the Jewish people who could not think about God based on the events of the 20th century. Um, so let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together, and we'll get right into it. I just want to real quick like frame in a minute uh, the humongous impact Harold Kushner had on Jewish theology. It was actually interesting. I was at Rabbi Kushner's funeral at Temple Israel in Natick on Monday, and there were a ton of speakers, as you might expect. But the very first speaker was Rabbi Gordon Tucker, you know, who's a leading light in American Judaism and a big official at the seminary. And he drives four hours from New York to be the first speaker. And he doesn't really talk about Harold Kushner as a person so much as the philosophy of Harold Kushner. And also, he tries to give a defense. And he titles his, this is the first eulogy, a defense of his theology. So why do you have to give a defense of his theology? So here's the move. Harold Kushner 
solves a problem. The problem is that the ideas in Jewish texts and the Tanakh about God don't work. They don't work. And if all you have is the ideas of the Tanakh for God, then God is not real to you. Which, by the way, is the deal for most Jews. Uh, that is to say, we're not God people, right? Uh, when, whenever you give a sermon about God, it goes whoosh. The, the, at the top of the mountain, it's not God, it's community. If you talk about community, uh, if you talk about Kiddush, if you talk about friends, if you talk about not being lonely and estranged, that resonates. If you talk about God, not so much. Why is that? Because Jewish sources before Harold Kushner could not really answer the question about how do you understand a world in which all this horrible stuff happens. Obviously the Holocaust, but for, put the Holocaust to the side. Open the newspaper any day, see a picture of a grieving Ukrainian family that is laid to rest a 28-year-old Ukrainian son and brother. And, how, and, and multiply that times civil war and torrential floods and famine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How could we understand God doing that? The answers of the Tanakh basically are uh, God visits this kind of stuff as a condign punishment for bad action. Uh, that is to say, if think about the Shema, if you follow God's laws, if you listen to the laws of the Torah, then God is going to let it rain at the proper season. You'll get corn and wine and oil in abundance. And if you don't follow God's laws, God is going to stop up to heaven. And now there's not going to be corn and wine and oil, and there's going to be famine. And there's going to be thirst, and there's going to be hunger. And if you think about the parts of the Torah that make this most explicit, it's called the tochacha, the castigation. That's at the end of Leviticus. That's at the end of Deuteronomy. And if you're ever in shul those days when the chanter chants it, they chant it with a whisper because it's explicit. If you do good, I will give you good. And if you do bad, I'm going to hammer you. That's in the Torah. That's in the sources. One more point. Um, that's not just individually, but that's for the collective welfare of the Jewish people. So, for example, how does the Bible understand the destruction of the first temple? Right? Solomon builds the first temple. It's the house of God, and then it's destroyed by Babylonia. How does Solomon how does the Bible understand it? The prophets understand it. They understand that Babylonia is the righteous rod of God's anger. God sent the Babylonians. God sent the Babylonians as God's righteous right hand, as God's righteous anger, to destroy the temple and exile the people and cause suffering because they sinned. Right. Now, that's basically where the, the state of Jewish theology until Harold Kushner. And if you read, uh, for example, a book that had a, a purchase on the American soul in the 90s, Neil Gilman's Sacred Fragments, he talks about the fact that that myth is a broken myth. No, it would be obscene. He uses the word obscene. I know we would all agree. Nobody would say that the Third Reich was God's righteous anger, come to, dis come to punish the Jews. Right? So that what the Bible's answer doesn't work, and we don't have a better answer. We're just broken. Harold Kushner enters that space, and he's the first thinker to actually provide a beautiful, helpful response. Uh, and as a result of that, right, so we just can't access God. Like, the Bible gives us reward and punishment. The Bible gives us uh, Babylonia destroying the temple as God's righteous anger. But we know that doesn't work. And therefore, we're not God people. We like Kiddush. We like tuna. We like bagels. We like friends. But we're not God people. That's where we were before Hal Kushner comes in. And I want to offer, and, and now 
we'll get to the, the sources. I want to give you two ideas. They're very simple. It's like the best sermon is a simple sermon. The best teaching on God is simple. Here's two ideas, and they're, I think, transformational, and it's going to take hundreds of years for it to settle in. Here's the first one, and we'll, we'll take a look at it inside. But he says, take, and we'll look at it inside, but I'll just frame it first and ask my colleagues for their thoughts. You'll read a lot of psalms that will say, God feeds the hungry. God takes care of the vulnerable. Okay? And Rabbi Kushner asked the question, wait a minute, how does that connect with reality? Because I know there's a lot of vulnerable that God doesn't take care of. And I know there's a lot of people who die of hunger that God didn't feed. So how are we supposed to understand a verse in the psalms and in our prayer book that says God feeds the hungry when we know there are people dying of hunger? So here's what Harold Kushner does. He says... It's not that God feeds the hungry. It's that when we feed the hungry, we can feel the presence of God. It's not that God takes care of the vulnerable. It is that when we take care of the vulnerable, we can feel the presence of God. And then he says, it's so simple. It's just so simple and so profound. And nobody said this before him in a way like he did. The question is not where is God. That's not a helpful question. The question is when is God. That God should be seen as a set of activities that when we do them, we can feel the presence of God. So take a look at your, um, in, the, in your handout, page four. And, I, and this is kind of post-Holocaust. This is, this is a way to make God real to people who don't connect with God. So he starts with this psalm. We say it every day. Uh, Psalm 146, the Lord sets the prisoner free, the Lord restores sight to the blind, the Lord makes those who are bent straight, etc. Okay? The Lord loves the righteous. Look on page um, 203 of his book. This is Who Needs God. Predicate theology means that when we find statements about God that say, for example, God is love, God is truth, God is the friend of the poor, we are to concentrate on the predicate rather than on the subject. Those are not statements about God. They are statements about love, truth, and befriending the poor, telling us that those are divine activities, moments in which God is present. Page 5, or in Rabbi Kushner's book, page 204. All those lines in the middle of Psalm 146, telling us that God secures justice for those who are wronged, gives bread to the hungry, sets prisoners free, restores sight to the blind, are not a description of how God spends his time. Concentrate on the end of each sentence rather than on the references to God. Read the sentences backwards. Securing justice is a divine act, a manifestation of God's presence in human activity. So is feeding the hungry, supporting the poor, comforting the sick, and, lo and the lonely. They are not things that God does. They are, pre they are things that we do, and when we do them, God is present in our lives. And two last pieces, b bottom half of the page. I suggested that in the place of asking where is God, we ask when is God. Being in God's presence is not a matter of being in the right place, but of doing the right things. What has to be happening in our lives for us to feel that we are in the presence of God? Um, and then he says, the activities listed in Psalm 146, feeding the hungry, straightening the backs of the oppressed, securing justice, are all answers Religion properly understood is not a series of beliefs about God. It's an inventory of moments in our lives, things we do and things that happen to us in which the person whose eyes are open will be able to see God. 
Dear colleagues, what do you think? When is God? And what do you think of that? Uh, does it work for you? Do you see it as, as new and revolutionary as I do? If not, where else do you see it, etc.? Love your thoughts on that. Um, hello, everybody. Thank you, Wes. Um, first of all, on a funny note, I want to thank everybody because I've been upgraded. My microphone says Elias. Normally, my microphones everywhere else says Elias David. <laughs> so my son David is over there. Thank you for coming with, with us this morning. Um, I, as I mentioned to you before, I read many of Rabbi Kushner's books in Spanish. They were translated into so many languages, and I read them while I was in Argentina. Um, I have some trouble with this kind of theology. Please. Um, every Tuesday, many of us teach uh, the sixth graders in the class of High 385, and I always teach them when I go over Virkot Shahar, you know, Adonai Matira Surim, Adonai exactly this theology, right? That it's not God, the one who does this, it's us inspired by God who do it. And when we do it, we find God. But he attributes most of the bad things or good things to lack. Yes. Uh, I don't think I buy that. I don't think it's random lack. What, I mean, what, what is our theology? If we only th why are we praying every day if it's only lack? And then this idea also, I want to hear your opinions on that, but this idea also that when we do good things, God is among us, I don't buy it either. Because there are so many people who don't believe in God who do good, wonderful things. And try to convince them that when they do good things, it's because God is among them. I don't, just so we're clear, I don't think he's saying that they do it because of God. There, yes, are there, is, there is a text there later a lot of that you, you highlighted a text later where he says that, that basically when, when we, a, world, a world without God, people won't do good things. So okay, but I, I think he's saying that when we do those good things, if we our eyes open to it, we can feel the presence of God. Michelle, Lisa, what do you get? So I, uh, I very much resonate with, um, with at least a part of what you're saying. I love Rabbi Kushner. I mean, as a rabbi, as a man, as a mensch, I mean, he, he was the greatest role model I could ever hope for in terms of what it means to live a worthy life, in especially in the face of tragedy, especially in the face of hardship. He counseled countless people across the globe to be able to um, navigate life in a way that helped them see God. And, and for that, I, I think he's absolutely extraordinary. And as you said, one of the greats of, of our time. Um, and I have a hard time personally with his theology because one of the core ideas of monotheism is that God is all, that God is the good and God is the bad. And in this passage that we just read, we see a lot about how God is there with you when you do good, but not much about God as a source of aid, of help, of comfort when you are tempted to do bad or when you experience somebody else being tempted to do bad and having followed through on that. Um, it feels like to put God in the category of only good and the rest God can't control. It's, it's luck. I, I love it. it. It's so comforting. <laughs> like I, I, wa I want a God like that. And yet I can't reconcile that God with the sources that are at the deepest core of our Jewish 
canon. Right. By the way, I think those sources are wrong. And I think the fact that those sources don't speak to people and the people can't connect with God, they want Kiddush, they want tuna, they want bagels, they want friendship, but they can't accept the tochacha. They just don't, that's not the way the world works. Why are people who are good dying of cancer? They can't accept that, and therefore they're just stymied with his, uh, God doesn't connect with me. So I, I don't know that that's entirely true, because if you look at the 12-step system, you'll find many, many people who find God exactly in that relationship that God cares about their flaws, that God cares about their wrongdoings, that God is deeply personal and invested and engaged in their yeah, lives. Was, was that, that, yeah, that God, the God who inspires me as a positive energy source to be the best me, that's a God people... Let, let, let's but Wes, Wes yeah. can I say something in, yeah. in relationship with what Michelle said? We know very well that most of the Psalms were written by King David, all right? And in those times, they were... Well, they weren't actually written by David. They were scribed to David. Okay, whatever. <laughs> okay. I believe, I believe no, in King moment. David. That is the reason I named my son David. Okay. So don't, don't destroy my narrative, all right. all right? Okay. Please. What I'm saying is that he, he many times he wrote or he compiled the Psalms after an episode of war, okay? And with that war, they were successful, but they destroyed somebody else, all right? So how many times in life we can see different sides of this and the people who win certain wars you know, whether or not we approve them, they are thanking God for what God was in the, on their side. So I, I follow your idea that God is everywhere. It's not only in the good things, but also in the bad things, I, and even though we may not like them. Okay, I also want to jump in because yes. I think that I'm someone who sort of goes back and forth between... Um, I, I There's a part of me, I know it's harmful, I know it's problematic, that loves the biblical God. Because when you're in the midst of Zorus, there's, if you believe in a God who punishes and rewards, and that life is that simple, then when bad things happen, you have something to do. You've got something to work on. You can, you know, that's like the check your mezuzahs in your house thing. You can, you can get your mitzvahs in order, right? And that, that can feel really grounding to have a thing. You know, it's one of the things that, that people talk about when you when you lose someone in Jewish tradition, that that you have ritual to cling to. You know that for seven days, or it's never seven days, but we're going to pretend for seven days, you're going to sit shiva, and you're going to have this, you're going to be in your house, you're not going to shave, and you're not going to look in the mirror, and there's, there's a thing to do. There's a place to, a ritual place to put that emotion, and that can be profoundly helpful. On the flip side, when you're doing all those mitzvahs, and when you're in the midst of despair and it's not changing anything, you can feel deeply betrayed by God. Like, WTF, God, I'm doing all the things. I'm being all the things. Why is it that nothing is changing? Why is it that you don't care about me? And that can feel like a deep betrayal. The, the thing that's challenging for me about Harold Kushner's theology is that, um, is what Michelle and Elias were alluding to, is it, it takes God's agency away that God is no longer capable of coming in and changing my life, which means that there's no one that's capable of coming in and changing my life, which means that I'm just sitting here waiting mm. for the tides to turn, and there's no being in this universe that has any power to make those tides turn, and God is just sitting there with me crying in my bedroom, Right. and that's all I've got. So let's, yeah, that's true. So let's take a look at... <laughs> Yeah, that's, Rabbi, I is mean, there any <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, Rabbi, so let's we, take a look. we we wait for your wisdom. Yeah. Here. So, 
so let me, okay, let's just take, let's, now, now we're having the conversation. This is where the rubber hits the road. Take a look at the first page of the handout. These are the first words in his book that launched him, and it's in memory of Aaron Zev Kushner. 1963, 1977, right? So any God that you're going to believe in, you've got to be able to wrap that God around in memory of Aaron Zev Kushner, 1963 to 1977. Because if you can't answer that question, that God's useless. This, this in memory of Aaron Zev Kushner, 1963, 1977, is its own tragedy, and there's a thousand tragedies like that every day. So if you can't, if you can't, if your God can't help with that, that God's yes that, uh, so and uh, yes so and let, well, let me just finish that. Let me just yeah. finish. So here's here's his move. All right, uh, and I think I, I want to read this. He he says so. He basically says um, there is a thing called luck. There's a thing called good luck and bad luck, right? And um, and it manifests in every chapter of our lives. And we were talking about this yesterday in the pregame. There are people who. I was mentioning there are th there's such thing as good luck. I mean, I do. This is the season of weddings, so I'm, I've got you know we have like six or seven weddings uh, in the next few months, and there are many stories where the couple that's getting married they met when they were 18, they met in college, they just fell in love in the registration line, they were like best of friends and partners in college, and then they moved to New York, and in the early 20s they moved in together, and now they're getting married, and they never had a day of loneliness in their life. They never went unhinged. They never did a social app. They never had a bad date. They never had a first date. They just had love. That's muzzle. And then there are people who once they get married, you know, they want to start a family and boom, 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 boom. They have their two kids, three kids, four kids, whatever they want. Boom, 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 boom. They never have heartbreak. Boom, 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 boom. Right? And then there are other people who never meet their loved one. Not in college, not in their 20s. Their 20s become loneliness. They become a wilderness. They have nothing but a thousand bad dates. They have a thousand hinge dates. They have a thousand horrible dates. And then they get married and they can't have kids or it's simus and painful, right? Why, why is that? And at every chapter, and then there are people who, I mean, we all know this. We all know that there are people who eat broccoli and run and do exercises until they're blue in the face and they die of an aneurysm or of a heart attack or this or that. And we all know people who smoke and they smoke and they're in their 90s, right? So here he said, he talks about um, this chapter, sometimes there's a reason. So I want to just read this um, and then talk about, number one, is it true? Do you agree with it? Or if you disagree, what do you disagree with? I want to read a few, a few paragraphs here, okay? Uh, this is page two of the handout in a chapter called Sometimes There Is No Reason. If the bad things that happen to us are the results of bad luck and not the will of God, a woman asked me one evening after I delivered a lecture on my theology, what makes bad luck happen? I was stumped for an answer. My instinctive response was that nothing makes bad luck happen. It just happens. But I suspected that there must be more to it than that. This is perhaps the philosophical idea, which is the key to everything else I am suggesting in the book. Can you accept the idea that some things happen for no reason, that there is randomness in the universe? Some people cannot handle that idea. They look for connections, striving desperately to make sense of all that happens. They convince themselves that God is cruel or that they are sinners rather than accept randomness. Sometimes when they have made sense of 90% of everything they know, they let themselves assume that the other 10% makes sense also but lies beyond the reach of their understanding. Why do we have to insist on everything being reasonable? 
Why must everything happen for a specific reason? Why can't we let the universe have a few rough edges? And then I just want to um, end this chapter. Look on page three. Okay, A change of wind direction or the shifting of a tectonic plate can cause a hurricane or earthquake to move towards a populated area instead of out into an uninhabited stretch of land. Why? A random shift in weather patterns causes too much or too little rain over a farming area, and a year's harvest is destroyed. A drunken driver steers his car over the center line of the highway and collides with the green Chevrolet instead of the red Ford 50 feet further away. An engine bolt breaks on flight 205 instead of on flight 209, inflicting tragedy on one random group of families rather than another. There is no message in all of that. There is no reason for those particular people to be afflicted rather than others. These events do not reflect God's choices. They happen at random, and randomness is another name for chaos in those corners of the universe where God's creative light has not yet penetrated. And chaos is evil, not wrong, not malevolent, but evil nonetheless, because by causing tragedies at random, it prevents people from believing in God's goodness. Now, my question, dear colleagues, what of that, if anything, do you disagree with? I think I think this is a very powerful modern theology. I mean, I, I don't think anybody who lives um, in our kind of culture right now, in in our particular place in Newton, Massachusetts, in a liberal Jewish community, would find too much to argue with about this. But I but I do want to push a little harder, Please. precisely because when I responded earlier to yes and to your challenge. Um, you know, the Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, yes. right, has a ha does have an answer, and it's a very different answer. And it's not this answer. It's not the answer that we find problematic. You know, God is just punishing you through tornadoes, and, and it must be something you've done wrong. There, there's a piece of the, of the sort of more thoughtful, more deep, um, religious openness to the idea that there can be a yes end. Yes, there is tragedy. Yes, there is some sense that God does not have um, intimate direction in every, in every single moment, but not because God can't, but because there are times that God does seem soon in order to provide space for us to be in this world, that that does not mean that there is not a God in those moments, but rather that God has some capacity for self-restraint in a world, which means that there is indeed randomness. Did I, and colleagues, if I, if yeah, I, no, if you I, can I, further articulate I that. I love that. And I think also for me, I don't think there's a one size fits all theology for every challenge that we face. I really think it's important that, um, we work with whatever theology, like for some people, the reward and punishment theology is really helpful. It's really grounding. It's really, it gives them agency and them taking that away does not help. For some people, it's profoundly harmful. Um, I, I also think about uh, my aunt who um, died really early, really young from multiple system atrophy and she called it my spiritual assignment. And for her, she felt what the rabbis talk about in the Talmud, which is that God gives suffering to those God loves most. And I don't, I to this day don't understand how it was that she endured those years of intense suffering with that frame that, that it was her spiritual assignment that God was enabling her to live in the present moment and to encounter the divine in every day. 
um, she did it with profound grace. And for her, that was transformational. And I can't say, like, when I was going through my stuff, I was not anywhere near there. I was not. I was not there. Yet, but I was also not with Harold Kushner. I was. I was uh, profoundly angry and deeply hurt, um, and that felt important to me. And it's not a theology, but that is an emotional state that I think, uh, ideally, whatever theology we have, allows us to process whatever we're going through in an emotionally healthy way. Yeah. So I just want to say that Simsum, you know, God chooses to withdraw versus can't, um, and you know, the assignment, uh, you know, that God afflicts those, et cetera. So if, if it works for people, if somebody, if, if somebody is more comfortable saying, I don't want to believe in a God who can't, I'll believe in a God who chooses to withdraw. And if somebody finds that there's meaning in the affliction that God, God loves me somehow and shows me his love by afflicting, you know, again, there's, there's all kinds of theologies, and if that works, great. Um, I remember Danielle Hartman's first teaching here when it came the first time was entitled the gods plural g-o-d-s of israel and he says that you know life is so complicated there's no one theology there's no one size fits all and we need gods plural on the cupboard to take out the god that's going to help you in your particular moment so god bless um here's my thought though i think um most people's responses that i know in 26 years of temple Emmanuel to all of these theological niceties is that god is inaccessible God is just remote. Like most most people don't believe that the suffering that they get is because God loves them. And most people, you know, it's it's a fine rabbi move or a graduate student move to say there's a big difference between symptom and God can't. I mean, again, it, it, if it makes it if it if it resonates, great. But most people, they just don't don't <laughs> connect with God. And what I think, um, the the idea that that he so where this leads, by the way, I want to just uh, end there. And then get Elias. I, and I then need to ask you a question. Yeah, yeah. But I just wanted that. So what he says about what what use is God then? Um, if you look at the page six of the handout, he write he writes a book on the Lord is my shepherd, and here's his main his main point: if God doesn't God doesn't control stuff, he says God can't control stuff. There's just there's such a thing as bad luck. Right, that um, you know, the think about. I mean, it, there's a million examples, but think about 9/11, and the guy that wasn't on the plane because they were stuck in traffic, or the guy that wasn't on the plane because they had to take their kid to the dentist that morning, and otherwise they would have been on the plane, etc. Um, luck, good luck, bad luck, bad luck for the people on the plane, good luck for the people who had a traffic jam and missed the plane. Um, so, what use is God? So here's his main answer, which is God is presence. I'm less alone, right? That I'm in pain, that, that life has visited upon me um, the death of my son Aaron Kushner. Life has visited upon me whatever tsar, whatever pain I'm dealing with. <coughs> and if I have God, then I, I am less alone. So he writes as follows. Um, this is on page six. This is from his book, The Lord is My Shepherd on the 23rd Psalm. There is pain in the world. If we are to be truly alive, we cannot hide from it, but we can survive it. And God's caring presence lessens the pain. There is fear in the world. There is vulnerability and uncertainty. God cannot tell us that nothing bad will ever happen to us. He cannot protect you from illness or bad luck. God cannot protect you from illness or bad luck, meaning... By the way, I'll be Rasha. You could pray morning, you know, morning, noon, and night. Shachar Smilchamara. If you could keep kosher, you could do every detail of the 613 mitzvot, and 
God cannot protect you from illness or bad luck. God cannot spare you from death and let you and those around you live forever. But God can give you the resources to transcend and overcome those fears. Last line, fear will assault us, but we will not be afraid, for thou art with me. This idea of a healing presence. Uh, bad luck happens. God doesn't stop it, but God <coughs> makes us feel less alone. That's his God. I would submit that what makes him a, a giant in the pantheon of Jewish thinkers is that's a God that ordinary people can believe in and connect with, which is why. Not that everybody does, and it's not one size fits all. I couldn't agree with you guys more. But that's why his books were translated into Spanish because that and, and 12 other languages. Because that idea, you know, life happens. God didn't micromanage this. God can't micromanage this. But God can make me feel less alone. That's a core idea. I really don't think it's in the Bible um, in the same kind of way that he talks about it. And I think it's a new idea, and it's super helpful. Elias. Yes, I want to ask you, I'm more interested in your theology than in Rabbi Kushner's theology. Um, I love putting you on the spot. Yeah. So um, we talked about many times and that the, the moment where I see you more connected with the liturgy in the Sidur or in the Machsor is Unetane Tokev. Okay? Unetane Tokev, as we know very well, has a part that it says, Berosh Hashanah Ikateu, millions of people who will live, who will die, and which ways people will perish. And uh, and then it says uteshuva utefila utzedaka mavirin etroa gzeira. What you mean? With I mean it's uh, clearly clearly and clearly uh, that yeah. that text where you are so connected right doesn't talk about random luck. Okay, so first of all, it's a couple things. The, I definitely connect with that. It's the spiritual highlight of my holidays, and the reason is you. Because the way you chant Unatana Tokef, uh, and the way I, I can't do it, but I can summon it, I can hear you do it, the way you do it, and also I know that that was your dad, may he rest in peace, uh, you know, like you're doing it connects you to your father, and the way you do it just brings pathos to my heart. That's why it connects with me. But I think that the actual words of Unatana... I hope you don't get upset with the question now that no, you said some wonderful no, things about no. me. No, no, but, but... I apologize. No, but, but I think that entire... I think it's exactly about random bad luck. Un the, the shot of Unatana Tokef is that bad stuff happens for no good reason. That's the shot. That's what it means. That who by stored, who by sown, who by water, who by fire is bad luck, bad luck, bad luck, bad luck. Um, and there's no, as actually nothing you can do to insulate yourself from that. And then what do we do? Teshuva, tefila, tzedakah. Ma'avirin, it doesn't say hagzeirah ra'ah. Does, it doesn't say it cancels the bad decree, that you have control. It says, ma'avirin et roa smichut. It, uh, it lessens the severity of the decree. That is to say, to be alive is to have roa ha There's going to be bad luck that happens to you, roa ha This ma'avirin et roa ha reduces it. So I actually think Unatana Tokef is, the pshat is Harold Kushner. So wait, uh, I mean, uh, I'm going to go with you on that last piece, because the, the certainly... Unatana Tokev speaks to the idea that bad things happen. They do. And they, they happen to people all the time, everywhere. But the word gzeirah, Rabbi, please translate. Roha gzeirah is, is the decree. The decree. Right. Right? It's, uh, uh, the, it's the, poetry, the, Michelle. 
No, but <laughs> it's poetry. It's not okay. So like we're, I, I, it's I, I need to I need to it's, push it's just a, a little on this. It's a poem. It's not a news column. I, I, I think I think that actually it is it is meant to signify that the entire day what we are doing is trying to change ourselves, change our lives, change our actions, change our deeds, yes. so that we will be worthy to live our best life in the face of that. And that Thank involves you, an encounter with a God who has the capacity for a gazera. I, okay. I. It, it is, it's like, there's not, and like, it's also like, what is it about sheep? Like, we're like sheep, there's actually not sheep in the right. synagogue. But, 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 sheep. but wait, but I, can I just say, but I, I love his, his idea on page two. Yeah. You know, why can't we let the universe have a few rough edges? And I kind of feel strongly, why can't we let our God have a few rough edges? Not but everything is going to align perfectly in every moment. That's the reason we have a hundred names for God, that, that we... We actually approach God in many different ways in many different times. The one thing that we don't approach God with is the idea of our life is just about luck. I know. Well, he doesn't say it's just about luck. He just says that luck happens and luck is a big deal. By the way, luck happens and it's a big deal. I mean, I often think about the thousand things that went into my being able to meet Shira when I met Shira. And if I had met her earlier, we never would have gotten together. And if I had met her later, we would have never gotten together. But the fact that I met her when, we, when I met her, it's luck. There's just no question about it. It's luck. Uh, so to me, I, he doesn't say it's all luck. He just says luck is pivotal. Elisa? So uh, there's a moment that we get to participate in for a lot of folks. And that is when people are in a, a medical crisis. And we're often called upon to do a prayer for healing. And that's a moment that I find, just for me, this this doesn't, and I, I, I want to say I love Harold Krishna. There are moments I really love it, but this doesn't hold up in those moments because what people want in those moments is to know that we are accessing a higher power that does have agency, that does have presence. It's not just like, I'm going to sit with you in your hospital room. But roll the film forward. What happens when they die? What happens when the prayer is not answered? Yeah, when the prayer is not answered, then yeah. we still want to have that God that can that could have that could have intervened. We want to have the anger. We want to have the the betrayal. We need to feel those feelings. I don't think it takes away from that. I think that that we feel the brokenness that 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 God didn't come through the way that we wanted God to come through, and that believing God couldn't have come through all along. I don't know that that provides any more comfort. Elisa Berger, can I ask a question? Yeah. There's one of the you know one of the teachings th about God is that. Uh, you know, the, the story that the person prays and the person prays, why didn't I get it? Why didn't God answer my prayer? And the answer is, God did answer your prayer. God answered your prayer. No. You know, God said no to your prayer. Uh, does that God work for you? The God who answers no, like, you're, you know, somebody's dying and everybody's praying and everybody loves and God says no. Does that God work for you? That God is. Like, I, work or not work, you know, it's like uh, in all of our relationships that are places that, that are that we would rather you know, people showed up in different ways. And I, yes, there are w plenty of ways I would rather God showed up in. But to me, to, to, to take God's power out of it, to me, it takes something out of the whole project. Mm. And, and so even though it's, it's profoundly disturbing, even though my own sense is of anger and betrayal, and much of my prayer life is about being angry with God at missed moments, I wouldn't trade that. So, mm. and, and I want to pick up on that by saying, you know, there's something beautiful that Rabbi Nachman kind of adds to a spiritual practice is that you can be angry at God and that's healthy and that's important. And one of the things that I miss 
about God in Harold Kushner's theology is a God I can be angry with. Okay. Well, I, I, I think the truest word spoken here is that one size does not fit all, and it's the gods, plural, of Israel. Um, and we need different gods in our cupboard for the different life situations. Um, I want to, but, but I, to me, I think that the notion that there is luck, there's such a thing as good luck and bad luck. Bad luck happens, nothing makes it happen. And that God is with you so that you're less alone and God gives you courage. I think that's a winning idea and, and it connects with a lot of people. Um, I wanted to just close with, um, with this talus, um, which is, uh, Harold Kushner once gave a speech about his daughter Ariel's bat mitzvah because, you know, he had Aaron who died and Ariel is his uh, surviving child who, uh, and she has two kids, Carl and Sheila. And by the way, at the funeral, if you happen to have been there or watched it online, they, they sing like amazingly, beautifully. They sang the Rose by Bette Midler and, and Carl and Sheila sang Psalm 23 and Carl, the grandson, Ariel's son, did um, Al Rachamim. Incredibly beautiful, okay? So she's having her bat mitzvah. You know, she's, you know, 13 years old, and they're a temple Israel and Adik. And, and his son is about to die. So his daughter's having a bat mitzvah, and his son is about to die. And he, and he gives this, this uh, sermon that I, I still remember, and he says, how am I supposed to get the energy to handle that? Like, I have a son who's dying, and I have a daughter who's thriving, and I'm the father of both. Is it even possible to celebrate my daughter and to mourn my son at the same moment, I'm out of energy. I'm out of energy. And then, and I don't know what to do. He's on the beam at his daughter's house. And then his uh, daughter's portion is Lech Lecha. And the Haftar is from Isaiah. And Isaiah 40 has this line, Kovei Adonai Yachlifu Koach. Those who have faith in God will have their strength renewed. They'll have their strength restored. Ya'alu Aver Kanasharim, they'll be able to rise like an eagle's wings. And he says, he's, he's asking this question, how do I get the energy? And then his daughter chants these lines from Isaiah, Koach. If you have faith in God, you get your, store, your strength restored. You have more strength with God than you have without God. That's not a God who caused his son's illness. That's a God who gives him the energy to deal with his son's illness. So I, I remember when I heard that, I called my mother. And I said, Mom, I have a God who works for me. And I gave her that. And she made me, she got this um, talus bag. Um, Jeanette Kuvenoran, who does the parochet for us, um, she did this. And she put this verse on this talus bag. That's my God. That's my God. Um, you got a song for us? Really? I need to follow that? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to end on a funny note. That's so beautiful. Yeah, we talk too much about God now, so let's talk about Mazel. And may we all be able to sing that in our community any day now. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> <laughs>